0: visit the all in website. So we're in Deuteronomy 12 tonight. It starts off saying, these are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days of your life on the earth. So this begins the third section of Deuteronomy Moses has already kind of given us a reason to study the law in chapters 5 through 11 and as we go forward into this next section we're going to get the law or the second telling of the law. The first telling of the law really being an Exodus in Exodus and Numbers uh, and even Leviticus covers worship. So we have different segments of the law and Deuteronomy is going to kind of do them all in one place. So it's versus getting individual articles it's like getting the Encyclopedia Britannica. So we're going to get between here and chapter 26, we're going to get the complete law for the Jewish people, and it's broken into three sections. So chapter 12, where we're at, through chapter 16, we're going to spend a couple weeks talking about worship. When we get to chapter 17 through 20, we're going to talk about civil government uh, or community life, and then in chapters 21 through 26, we'll get to family and personal life or how we should be living. And you put all three of those together, and you've got the family you've got the nation and you've got the church you've got kind of these three segments of life that a believer uh, should know what the law is and what God expects them of Uh, it says in the land I want to talk about that for just a second so in chapter 1 it says um, uh, that you should be careful to observe in the land which the Lord your father is giving you that in the land phrase those three words make it so that when we approach these chapters chapters 12 through 26 we can approach it in one of two ways and I honestly think both are valid. And, and the first way you approach these verses is that this is the law for the Jewish people while they live in Israel. And that when, when it says in the land, that's a conditional statement. And it's a valid reason, reading of the Hebrew that as they go off to Babylon or the diaspora, or if we're in New York City, it may not be the law under which the Jewish people live. Um, So it's specific to the land. In the last chapter 11, we even got geographical borders or outlines for that land that are really particular. There's a second way to read this too. And that is that there are biblical truths that are being given to the, the people that God doesn't change. So what God desires of the people when they live in the land of Israel really doesn't change when Jesus comes to earth and tells us what he wants of us too. And what the Lord demands of us and what the Lord requires of us, it never really changes. So where these are specific to being in the land, there are spiritual principles that we pull from this that have every application to our life today. Because this is ultimately what what, what God wants of his people, especially in chapters 12 through 16, when we're talking about worship. That to say, if this is what God wants of our worship, then we need to be really tuned into that. and We need to think about it. So as always, I'm going to try to give the spiritual implications of verses, But honestly, this is a lot of the sort of thing that divides the church because we can argue about the particulars or we can agree upon and have unity of spirit around that God wants our hearts, which is, again, what Moses just spent chapters 5 through 11 telling us. In other words, as I'm giving a big preamble to this chapter, Moses gave an even larger preamble to this part of the book where he basically told us it's about serving the Lord with all our heart, minds, and soul. And that's what it's all about is those things. Those are the verses that Jesus quoted again and again and again in various parts of his life is that there's this aspect in which We're to serve the Lord and we're supposed to do it with our heart. So it's a lot of the stuff we see in the next chapters that become contention between Jesus and the Pharisees. But that doesn't end with Jesus and the Pharisees. These are things that are of contention between churches today. So we'll cover some of those issues. I'd love, after we're done tonight, like the wide open door to have conversations about it. But I want to have conversations around these topics, understanding that we have unity around the idea that we're here to love the Lord, that God comes first not these kind of granular pieces that that are really ripe for discussion. Um, that said, uh, taking it straightforward and, and using the in the land piece, these are things that matter to God. And if they matter to God, they matter to me. Because I want to know what God was trying to tell the Israelites as much as I want them to know what he was trying to tell me. So verse 2 says, uh, and he starts off this idea of worship with, if you're going to worship God, you got to get rid of the false worship. And you have to kind of clear some stuff out of your life. So, verse 2, You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods. And on the high mountains and on the hills and on every green tree, you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. So, if there's any confusion about how we're supposed to interact with things that the world loves and things that the world adores... Um, The God makes that very clear to the Israelites. There are things that the Canaanites worship and love and adore and spend their time on. You're going to get rid of those things. So again, the word destruction here is in reference to false idols and images and tools of worship and even these places of worship that they had. God doesn't want fake worship to happen amongst his people. The high places specifically go with Canaanite theology. The higher up off the ground they could get, so the highest peak they could find, they felt was a more religious place because they're physically closer to a distant God. And this is a God trying to tell the Israelites, it doesn't matter if you're on a mountaintop or a valley, he's right in the middle of your camp. And Jesus said, you know, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there too. So when you're talking about an intimate, personal God, the location of worship doesn't seem to matter so much. But the Canaanites had changed that. They had manipulated the truth, they would warped the truth. Romans 1.25, they changed the truth of God into a lie and they worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever, amen. So anytime somebody starts putting the priorities of humans ahead of the priorities of God, we've got a problem biblically because God wants the worship of Yahweh, Jesus, to come way before anything that humans want to get all up in arms about so humans are going to worship something i think that's another principle to get here the assumption here the problem isn't that the canaanites worshiped it's that they worship the wrong things and humans are just wired to worship we don't just go to work and and eat and die we go to work we find things to love and then we die so no matter if you're not worshiping god you're worshiping something and we have a tendency to change the truth to justify whatever that thing is that we're worshiping. And those things can be bad or they can be just things that are a distraction and empty. Um, because it's not that they—it's not that the things that are created aren't worthy of admiration, but they're not worthy of our worship. So in verse 5, you shall seek the place. Um, the seek the place there has to do with a pilgrimage. Uh, so that in the Hebrew, that connotes... Uh, to make a holy pilgrimage. They are supposed to move towards the place God tells them to be. And oddly enough, in verse 5, it doesn't tell them where the place is. You'd think they'd just say it right up front. But it's because the place doesn't matter as much as following God. So the pilgrimage has more value than the actual end point in this case. So you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. He doesn't even say here that it's going to be amongst the tribe of Judah. He just says it's amongst the tribes. So the point is to follow the Lord. And when we do that first, the place can be found. This place gets referenced 21 different times. And with each time that we're going to see it mentioned, this is the first time, the place where God's going to anoint for worship. With each time it gets mentioned, we get a little more detail about that place. And that's called a progressive revelation. So the location of God's temple is going to be a progressive revelation to the Jews as we go through these histories and we, as we go through Deuteronomy. So in this particular reference, there's virtually no detail whatsoever, but the important thing is that you're supposed to follow God where he chooses, and that's where you should go. Uh, when it says, there you shall go, implies that there's a place that's already there. God's already anointed it, he's already picked it, he's made it happen, he's arranged for that place to exist. And when we go to a place that someone else has picked out, there's two actions on our part that have to happen. Two kind of conditional verbs. One, we have to listen to somebody when they give directions. And two, we actually have to move towards those directions on faith that they're the right directions. So when somebody's waiting for us and we have an appointment with somebody, uh, we have to listen to the directions and we have to go there. And I think that's just kind of a nice thought to have around how we deal with God. When God has a place in our lives that he's determined he wants us to go or a call-in that we should go to, in order to get to the place where we know we're in God's calling or doing what God wants us to do, we have to first listen to God, and that's why we study the Bible, because we want to hear what is said in his word, and then we actually have to walk that way. We have to, and, and, and biblically speaking, we've seen that a few times now, even in the book of Deuteronomy, that you hear God's word and then you go that direction and you walk that direction. Whether or not you're going the right direction isn't as important to God as that you start moving. In the direction that he says to move. So that's a theology of worship. If we want to go to a place where we meet God in worship, that's and I that's kind of one of those first kind of distinctives about worship. And the Old Testament tells us how to worship. Allah, the book of Leviticus is an entire book on how God wants us to worship. The New Testament has virtually nothing on worship, and that's interesting. Because if Jesus is our our Savior and he's our place of worship, the New Testament, whenever it mentions worship, assumes that the reader and that the participants in the narrative knew what worship was already. So it'll say the disciples worshipped together or that they sang hymns together. But it assumes that you know what that means and what that looks like. It assumes the reader knows what it means because they're assuming that you have an Old Testament that you can read and you've been taught. And much of the audience of the New Testament were people that were familiar with the the, the Old Testament. So when we read through this, it's going to just define those things that the New Testament expects that we already know. And I love that thought. It's why I study the Old Testament. So another thought before we get into worship is I think to some degree, especially in the American church, we the location here is really important. And that's Moses defining a location. It's okay for us to think of worship as... A place that we go and when we go there we're actually making an act of sacrifice we attend and that is the beginning of kind of worship is that you show up where it's happening you actually arrive at the place that verse five is talking about and I think that for us that we think sometimes worship is the singing of songs and the playing of music and that's part of worship but we're going to get a further definition of worship in the next few verses verse six there you shall so we're at the location we've arrived Verse six, there you shall make your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. The first element of worship, once we arrive where God wants us to be for that, and we've gotten rid of false worship in our life, is to give the offerings that are due God. And offerings are, are key because they belong to God. It's not a grudging obligation. It's not something we do because we have to. We do it because we recognize that God has blessed us and we give back to God what is already his. And offerings are a big deal. We'll come back to them in just a second. Let me get to verse seven quick. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice in all that you have put your hand you and your households in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Notice that God tells them to destroy the altars, of negative action, but he pairs it with the proper positive actions that are the opposite of that. So at the same time you're destroying false worship, you're building true worship that looks like verses 6 and 7, or 5, 6, and 7 if you include the following part. So your God lists what we do instead of the false worship. Okay, and I love this. It's a great list. If we listen and follow God's word, that's kind of step zero. We add to that making offerings, verse 6, eating, verse 7. And you all know I love to eat. And a good barbecue's been mentioned before in the Bible. It keeps coming up. And then rejoicing. And the, the, So you're supposed to have do something that's really joyful, offerings. Do something that's really joyful, eating. And then you're supposed to rejoy. And rejoy is an interesting word here. Um, And we'll kind of go through each of these three things. But these are all commandments. I want to point that out before I go through them too. You shall, there you shall do this. So these are three of the first commandments of the law is that you shall give your offerings to the Lord, see Leviticus on what that looks like. You shall eat before the Lord, see Leviticus on what that looks like. And you shall rejoice before the Lord. Those are commands. So the first commandments of God are actually pretty amazing commandments for us. They're not exactly painful or hard to do. I want to point out that in verse six there are seven different offerings listed. That is the number of perfection. There there is a degree to which we worship God in these ways. And worship here has nothing to do with singing songs. It has to do with giving these offerings because God told us to. Sometimes we do things not because it's the kind of thing we want in our worship, but it's the kind of thing God has prescribed and brought us to. So there is a uh, generosity that comes with that. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 9.5, it talks a little bit about gifts and and how we give gifts and the the spirit that we do it with. Um, Where Paul says, therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that may be ready as a matter of generosity and not grudging obligation. When we give these gifts in verse 6, we're not supposed to be grudging about them. We're supposed to do it out of pure joy and that we love the Lord and we want to serve the Lord. Verse 7 has the eating before the Lord, and you all know I want to stop on this. But don't take my word for it. Like, eating's a big deal in the Bible. and You all know I love to eat, and you know that I take eating as an act of praise. It is a form of celebration when you just put something in your mouth and you appreciate that God did not have to make good food. We could have just been eating lamba bread or manna for the rest of our lives. But God created a world in which there are spices and there are there is sugar and there is salt and there are things that make food taste delicious and I just what an act of worship when you eat with that in mind and think this is a total blessing from God what I'm doing right now. So eating's mentioned five hundred and fifty-four times in the Bible. It's a major topic, not a minor one. In Deuteronomy alone, the second law. It's mentioned 53 times. And it's one of the first commands we're given when we get to chapter 12. We're supposed to eat together. Now, you can't eat together virtually. And eating is an act of trust. When I eat your food, I'm trusting that you're not poisoning me, that what you make might actually be tasty too. Uh, And sometimes that's a big stretch of trust. Sometimes it's not such a big stretch of trust. And it's not just being me a, a glutton and saying I love food, and though I am tempted towards gluttony, when I'm praising the Lord with what I'm doing, and I'm doing it as an act of fellowship with my brother or sister in Christ, there is an amazing bond that happens when you eat together. It's why we invite people over to each other's houses to eat, or prior to COVID, we could go out to eat with each other. It's one of the ways you just connect because you can't do anything but eat the food and have conversation with each other. So it's not just one of the first commandments in Deuteronomy. In Genesis 2.16, it's one of the first commandments to humanity, uh, it's one of the traditions that's established in Genesis 27-7. It is one of the promises of God that when they come into the land, they will eat. Genesis 45-18, Nehemiah 8:20. 20 uh, Even at the end of days in Revelation 2-7, it's one of the promises that we have of heaven. The part of heaven is going to be eating together. It's one of the miracles of Jesus. The first miracle he did was to change water into wine at a wedding feast. Uh, but making food, Mark 6... Uh, having communion with his disciples, Mark 14, Jesus acted and did ministry through food. And we can't minimize that, right? And when Jesus returned, he's in his re- resurrected body, and he encounters the disciples. They're on a boat, and he waves to them from the shore. And what he's doing when he waves to them is he's cooking fish on a grill. And he says, come and eat breakfast. And none of the the disciples dared to ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. One of the first things Jesus says to them as he's bringing them together after he's resurrected is, come and eat breakfast. Come and eat. And this idea of eating is something that we can't minimize or let go of as a church. It's it's an essential part of what we do, and it's a command in the Bible that we shall eat together. Rejoicing, the third thing that was in these these verses, verse uh, verse 7, samach is the Hebrew word for rejoice. It's a really interesting word. When we think of gladness or joy, that's a state of happiness. Rejoicing doesn't assume that you're in that state. It is the act of Putting on that state of happiness. When you say to rejoice, it assumes that you're coming through the door with a broken heart. It assumes that something has caused it so that you don't have joy. And this is kind of a distinct thing that you got to think. A lot of people walk into churches and say, oh, everybody just pretends that they're happy. And to some degree, we all have things in our life that we're sad about, that we're disappointed about, that we're angry about. We don't necessarily come to church on a Sunday morning with joy in our heart part of why we go though is that somebody else who is feeling the hand of the Lord in their life they are having a a, a mountaintop experience they get to share those at church and we get to feel blessed that we're in a community where God's touching lives and we get our perspective back and we understand that our joy does not come from our circumstances but our joy is in the Lord and when we can do that and we're reminded of that in a community of people then we can rejoice uh, literally to re-gladden to put upon ourselves joy and to return to a place of joy. That's rejoicing. But I think sometimes we say that word so much, we forget that it literally means to not be happy, but to do it again, to realign, reset, rebuild. All of those worlds, when you put RE in front of it, they imply a discontinuity. You are not already built, you need to rebuild. And with joy, we're doing the same thing. We are not already naturally joyful. We need to rejoy every week. So they're commanded to do that. In other words, it's not something you feel, it's a decision you make out of obedience to God. That when you put on that joy and you're not walking around like a weepy Sally all the time or a weepy Henry, that you're deciding to move forward in joy and that's an act of obedience to your God because he's given you what he's chosen to give you and you can choose to be content with what you've been given or to and move forward accordingly or to be discontent with your situation. And it says, all to which you have put your hand. And it seems to be that what we're supposed to rejoice in is everything we have. And the status of what we have is what we're thankful for. And, and, and you can reduce that to the lowest of levels. So I would ask, are you still breathing? Because if you're breathing, God's given you life, right? Are you at this point emaciated from hunger? And there are Christians that could answer that question and say, yes, I'm starving to death right now. Are you still okay with where God has put you and the plan he has for your life? Have you given your life to God to the point where you can say, no matter what happens to me, I'm in God's hands and I trust him. I trust that even unto death, I can love my Lord. So the state of joy is not conditional on our physical carnal condition. It's stated, it's a decision we make that's spiritual, right? So we we replay these gifts that God has given us to rejoice and in part to remember where we've been. So Moses does that. In verse 8, he's like, you haven't always been at the place that you're at now. And he's talking to an on fire, alive, ready to go Israel. And he says in verse 8, You shall not do as we are doing here today, every man doing what's right in his own eyes. For as of yet, you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God has given you. There is greater yet to come. But behold, when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there will be a place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. That's the second mention of this place. And there you shall bring all that I command you, and your burnt offerings, your sacrifice, your tithe, your heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. Verse 8 says, you shall not at all do. That's an emphatic. It's not just a you shall not. It's a "it's a you shall not, you shall not. So it's not a good thing to do what's right in your own eyes. It, Mo- Moses makes that very clear. Worship is not about what we think worship can be. And how many times have you been in a church where people comment on the worship? And they decide if that worship is what they want or if that worship is not what they want. Um, and that's a dangerous, that's a place we should take heed of. When we start doing commentary on worship, the question is, are they teaching the Word of God at that location, and if the worship's what you want it to be or not, is really not as important as if that is the place that God has shown you to be, and if that's the place that's accurately letting you hear what God has to say. So, what they're doing there today is everybody does what's right in their own eyes, they worship however they please. That's not good. There's going to be a place where worship's decided by God. So... And when they do that, that's not that—that that is a spiritual kind of behavior as to what they're going to do. So, biblically speaking, that phrase "whatever is right in his own eyes," uh, biblically, at every single mention of that, it's always a horrible thing. It is not good to make up our own mind about worship and about how to love our Lord, because God's told us how to worship and how to love our Lord. We're supposed to follow and obey what God has said, not make up our own religion. So, the the idea of doing what's right in your own eyes. Got to be really hesitant with that. It is the final say on Israel when they get judged in Judges 16 17.6. It is the key indicator of what a fool is in Job 32.1. It is the pathway of walking for fools, Proverbs 12, 15. Doing what is right in your own eyes is self-delusion, Proverbs 21.2. So I'm going to do it this way because this is what I feel like God is telling me. Uh, that's self-deluded. Uh, you, you can't act that way because you're outside of what God has clearly said in his word. Um, doing what's right in your own eyes is hopeless, Proverbs 26:12, and it's lazy. Just to name a few references in Proverbs 26, uh, uh, twenty six twelve again, same verse. So doing what's right in your own eyes is deluded, hopeless, lazy, foolish, and ultimately the terms on which God will judge every human on this earth. People that do what's right in their own eyes are in danger of condemnation. Not from other people, right? We don't need to judge. I don't need to determine if you're doing what's right in your own eyes or not. I don't know. I'm not inside your head. But it is is the means in which God will condemn people. Uh, But we don't get to condemn. There is no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus, uh, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Uh, It's funny, some versions, when you cite Romans 8.1, uh, like the NLT version of the Bible just deletes the second half of that sentence. That it's conditional on people not walking according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So condemnation does exist for those that are walking according to their flesh, according to what they think is right. Um, so, And this is part of why myself and other teachers of of the Bible, we often come back to saying things like, don't believe me. Don't take my word for it. Please don't do that. This isn't what's right in my eyes. I'm just trying to share with you what the Bible says. And if what the Bible says differs with what's right in your own eyes, you might want to think about reaverting your eyes. Like, let's not fight with the Bible. Let's start from the Bible and work from there. And the question is, how do we live out what we see in the Bible better? And in that space, there's a lot of room for discussion. So, Verse 9, it says, God is giving. I love how God gives them what they need before they're asked to offer it. Verse 10, it says, when you cross, I just like that the word cross is in there (laughs) because it has something to do with God's going to bless you and give you things, but the cross gets to be part of it. There is a point where you come to the cross. You have to cross that river and you have to come to the cross of Jesus. You have to come to a point where you're obeying God instead of yourself. And that rest that they get is going to come before the worship. It's conditional chronologically in verse 10. When you cross, he gives you rest. So the cross comes before the rest. And for people that are anxious and they haven't come to the foot of the cross, there's some anxiety there. And for these Israelites, if they don't obey God and they don't cross the Jordan River, they don't do what they're told, there won't be any rest. And there are thousands of Christians today that don't find rest because they don't do what God says to do in his word. The word rest there is nuwak in the Hebrew. It is a primitive root. It is meant in the broadest of all applications. It is rest physically, spiritually, emotionally. That rest comes from our relationship with God. It doesn't come when we make enough money or have good enough relationships or we get the best job or we get enough attention. Rest comes when we find our place in God. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Obedience comes before rest. That was a Hebrews 4.11 reference, by the way. So that idea of rest has to be something that we just seek through obedience. And when people are unsettled or they're not feeling comfortable, one of the best ways to counsel them is get back to the Word of God and do what the Word of God says to do. And part of what it says is to abide in God and to wait upon God. And we uh, humans hate to wait upon the Lord. We hate to abide with God. We want to be moving and doing things, even when we've titled those things as good. Even when we want to build things that are for God, uh, that can be a real deceptive place for us to be. It says in verse 11, there will be a place for these offerings. God fixes the place. He sets it up. He does the work. We simply come past and enjoy what he's already made. So today, those three things, offerings, eatings, and rejoicings, are three of the things that the church has nearly abandoned in the United States. And it's scary to the degree to which offerings have become just optional. If you want to, give whatever you feel led to give. And and let's just ignore the prescriptions of the Bible, but the Bible's clear. And this is one of those touchy things for people. They don't want to talk about money. It's part of, frankly, why in our Bible study, we don't do money. Like, we're not doing tithes and offerings. We've never really asked for money. And it doesn't mean that people can't give and donate. But, boy, if you go to a church and you're calling that your church, they get that money. It's not your choice. And America seems to think that we've just gotten really lax on that. But it is a commandment of God to give the proper tithe to God that he's asked of you. And in America and in the Bible, that's pretty clearly defined as one-tenth of your money. So you should be giving a tenth or a tithe uh, wherever you call church. And it's not an optional thing to do that. It's not if you want to. And for people in the ministry, there should be money set aside for that ministry. So even pastors tithe a kind of their money. I, one of the brothers I have, I love how he deals with it. He's like, no, God gets 100% of my money because I gave my life to him. It. So it's all God's money. And I pay my bills with whatever is left over after we do the ministries God's called to. So if the church is tight, that they get my money first and I'll go live in a tent. And that idea of offering, that attitude of offering is one that's wholly devoted to God. And it sounds crazy to people in the world, but offering for a a person seeking to follow the Lord, and again, you could say this is just for the Israelites, but I think tithing is pretty well established throughout the Bible, It's it's not an optional thing. Eating together, that used to be, you talk to people that went to those small churches that their grandparents went to, and potlucks were happening almost every Sunday. Regular routine eating together activities. These big, large churches today, they don't even eat together because of safety reasons. And then there might be some donuts at the door, but they're not sitting together and eating face-to-face. So eatings become rare and disconnected in the church. And then you look at joy. Go into most churches today, and you're going to find a lot of legalism and judgment versus people putting on joy together. You know, And different churches have different strengths and weaknesses in this area, but offerings, eating together, joy together, boy, those things aren't there then there should be some questioning about if that's the kind of church that that a a believer or a Bible-following believer wants to be at. So God's church, when he defines the place, has proper offerings, proper eatings, and proper rejoicings happening. And if it doesn't have those things, it's not a place that God has prepared. It's a place that humans have prepared. So there's simply no group that's excluded from that. Verse 12, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, and the Levite who's within your gates since he has no portion nor inheritance with you. So clearly there's no group that get, that is excluded from rejoicing together. And this is God's church. Every person, every walk of life, there is no division for God and from God's perspective that matters other than people that rejoice in the Lord and people who don't. There's no diversity for God other than There's a diversity in people who serve the Lord Jesus Christ and people who don't. And there is chaos and there is order. There is loving the Lord and there is hating the Lord. There is no lukewarm halfway in between those things. You either love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul or you love something else or yourself more than you love God. There are two camps. And if you have any question about what your camp you're in, let's pray together. Let's get you in the right camp because the path into the camp is really easy verse 12 makes it clear everybody gets included the door is open to everybody matthew 22 the invitation for the wedding goes out to everybody Um, and everyone who's invited gets to come not everyone who's invited is worthy matthew 22. so we invite everybody in the door and we do that here at bible study right if you want to come to bible study this is where we invite people because this is the middle of what we do we have stuff that we do where we're not reading the bible together and that's great, and that's fellowship, and that's living life together, and it's brothers and sisters in Christ being in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ. But the core of what we do is that we study, we're studying through the entire Bible together. Word for word, every chapter, we don't wanna miss a beat. Um, but everybody's invited to that. Not everybody wants to sit and study the word. That's why we we do recruitment around the word, because that's where it should all start. Um, but that command to rejoice, it's out there. Philippians 4:4. 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's a persistent law that goes well beyond Deuteronomy 12, verse 13. Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses, in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and you shall, and there you shall do all that I command you. Again, Moses is saying it now for the second time. You don't get to pick where God wants you to be for worship. God makes that choice um, so we have this taking heed thing again we've seen that before it implies a soldier-like guardianship over something uh, and we take heed to that in this in verse 13 specifically we take heed that we do it where God tells us not in where we think we should be not in every place we see so we can't walk into a church and say I, I see what I want to see in this church we walk into a church and we pray Are they studying the word? Are they giving their tithes and offerings? Are they eating together? And are they rejoicing together? And do we see those things happening? And can we identify the place based on God's definition, not on our own? But again, Moses said that. We've talked about it. Verse 15 However, you may slaughter and eat meat within all your gates, wherever your heart desires, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he's given you, the unclean and the clean may eat of it, of the gazelle and the deer and light. This is like when, when God came to Peter in a dream and he said, Rise, kill, eat. So you can have barbecue, you can eat what you want, you can have a variety of food, you can do what you want to do. How is it that verse 13 and 15 aren't contradictory? Because in one it says you should only do it where God tells you, and in verse 15 it says you may slaughter and eat me within your gates, wherever you want, eat whatever your heart desires. Seemingly there's a difference. Here's the difference, I think. In verse 15 it says you may slaughter and eat meat. There is nothing holy about that whatsoever. It's killing an animal and eating it. It's butchering Butchering to the pagan is always associated with a worship kind of religious connotation because they believe when you let blood out of a beast, there's power going out of that beast that you can drink, bathe in, do whatever you want with that blood, and that you have somehow as a human the ability to transfer power from beast to human or other human to human, right? So some pagan Canaanites were killing babies. For this reason. It was to absorb power through the blood. The Bible never denies that there's life in the blood, but it's God's life to move between things, and he'll prescribe how to do it. Therefore, in the Jewish tradition and Christian, it is perfectly possible to kill an animal and not make it a religious festival. So if you're going to just kill and eat some meat, you can do that however you want, whenever you want, in your gates, whatever meat you want to do. Doesn't matter if you're clean or unclean, because it's not religious. It's just a barbecue and it's not a barbecue in the name of Jesus, right? So this is one of those things where Moses is drawing a line. Verse 16, the line continues, "'Only you shall not eat the blood, "'you shall pour it out on the earth like water.'" This is because in Genesis 9, 4, it says, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is the blood. In Leviticus 17, 11, it says, "'For the life of the flesh is in the blood, "'and I have given it to you upon the altar "'to make atonement for your souls, "'for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul.'" God controls that blood, and he controls life, and if he wants that blood to be a symbol for life on the altar, then he's going to use that as a symbol, and there will be, at some point, God will inhabit a human being and create an eternal Jesus Christ that has eternal life in that blood, and when that blood is shed, it will make eternal atonement for sins based on the image he's setting up through prescribed worship that he's telling the Jews that same image and prescription of worship creates a spiritual law that there is atonement atonement in the blood. And that's why we sing songs about Jesus' blood being shed for us, Um, that it is an atonement for our sins because God said it is. God wants blood to symbolize that life, and therefore we're not sloppy with blood. It has meaning and it has intent. But when we pretend to have little spiritual rituals wherever we want, it's not necessarily ordained or prescribed by God. This is the danger of people just going off doing whatever they want to do in the faith, is that they're saying they're doing it in the name of God, but they're not. So when you see that happening, one of the good questions is, okay, where's the oversight that you have? Who's, so if God's telling you to do that, show in the word of God where it says to do that because God would speak and say it through his, the Word. So when somebody's doing something in the name of God and they can't back it up with the Scriptures and they don't have oversight through brothers and sisters in the faith through an established church that goes all the way back to Peter, <laughs> then you have a problem. And people would say, well, then Protestants are part of that church. And I would say, yeah, they really are because most of the Protestant movements came out of a return to the Scriptures and a return to God's Word where the church had gone apostate Therefore, they needed to establish new institutions that returned to what the Bible said. So when Martin Luther tacked the 95 Thesis on the, on the door, he was returning 95 points at which the Catholic Church had abandoned the Scriptures directly. And he was showing from the Word of God where that happened, thus justifying a new church, because the Church of God is ordained by God, not ordained by men. Uh, so we see that happening as the Church is multiplied and spread over the planet Earth, Uh, That's where we get new institutions and new denominations. But denominations aren't from God. Denominations are names people put as there's a new movement of God in the church and it gets validated. But we throw denominational names on things. God never did. For God, there's just the church and people that aren't in the church. Verse 17. You may not eat within your gates the tithe or grain offering of your new wine and oil, of the firstborn of your herd or flock, or any of the offerings which you vow. Or your free will offerings or the heave offering of your hand. Don't take what is already God's and call it yours. Don't take pieces of your tithe and do that. I think that's a principle that goes well beyond Deuteronomy 12. But of course, you can just say, this is just for the Jewish people if you want to. Um, Verse 17 says, you may not. Again, people get touchy about that. Uh, I don't have to get touchy about it because I don't gather tithe from any of you. Um, but the, the, it, it, it says, Leviticus 27:30, all of the tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So in Leviticus, it's not only the ownership issue, it's that it has a sacred holiness to it. And when you start stealing from the, the oil or the grain that is set aside for God, uh, that's a huge issue between God and the truth of the matter is it was God's to start with. So. Romans 12:16. be of the same mind toward one another do not set your mind on high things but associate with the humble don't be wise in your own opinion when it comes to money we have this huge tendency to think we know better than God on how to handle our money you know there's just warning after warning in the Bible don't do that be humble to God don't think that it's yours Uh, It's God's money to start with. And when we get the right perspective on money, we're a lot healthier and a lot happier. And it conditions us to be ready to feast out of generosity with one another and to be humble and rejoice with one another Uh, because we're not higher than other people. We don't set ourselves above other people. And we we start in doing that with our tithes and offerings. Verse 18, you must eat before the Lord. So Moses is going back through the big three things and he's giving a little more detail on each one. You must eat them before the Lord your God in the place with which the Lord your God chooses. Your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who's in your gates. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all to which you've put your hands. Take heed to yourself that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in the land. This is a big deal, verses 18 through 19. We need to just do it the way God says. They should be, we should invite the Levites to our barbecue. Today we are a holy priesthood. You don't not invite people of God to the barbecue <laughs> when we start playing favorites like that that's just kind of it implies that there's oversight right so the Levites were supposed to be the spiritual leaders the people that kept the the law perfectly for the people and taught the law perfectly to the people um, so when we let God come into our life we let him teach us when we invite a Levite to our feast we're letting God teach us his word uh, Matthew 11:29, 29 same principle Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you'll find rest for your souls. You want rest? Let God teach you. And how do you get taught by God if you're not reading the word of God? So we serve and it, we, we are yoked with God in service in that idea of being obedient to God and being able to do that and being humble and gentle at heart is to submit to those things. It all goes together. Learn his word find some rest we hear that again and again at bible study people show up and they're like man i can just feel what it does in my heart and it just gives me peace i just feel like i'm right with god every week and the reason you feel that way is because god made you that way and he wired you in such a way where if you just do what he tells if you use it as the manual prescribes it it will last a good long time and you'll put less stress on it So when you take your body and use it the way God told you to use it and your finances and your tithe the way God says to, and you're eating and you're rejoicing the way God prescribes it, you find more rest. When the Lord your God enlarges your border as he's promised you and you say, let me eat meat because you long to eat meat, we know that feeling, you may eat as much meat as your heart desires. Again, you can have a feast, just don't call it church. You can have a bingo night, just don't call that church. You can have a night where you watch Lord of the Rings together and make popcorn balls and just hang out together and live life together. Just don't call that church. Don't replace what is fun and entertaining with what is obedient and learning the Word of God. And don't mix those two things. We do a lot of things outside of Bible like study. Um, but Bible study starts what we do. It's the beginning of what we do. And we, we're all of one mind on that. We agree on that. This is where we begin. Everything else is just for fun because we love one another. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter from your herd and your flock, which the Lord has given you, just as I've commanded you, and you may eat within your gates as much as you desire. Look, if you can't make it to the big feast in Jerusalem because it's just too far away, God makes an exception for that. He knows the borders will expand in verse 20. So he knows that there's going to be a time when walking by foot from New York to Jerusalem is going to be too tough, too tough to do. So he creates a Levitical system where they can kind of make some exceptions to that rule, and it's built right into the law. Verse 22, and I think that's graceful. By the way, just commentary on verse 21. I think it's amazingly graceful that God puts the exceptions in before it's ever a problem. So his, his word is complete. And we can return to things when we have problems and look to the word of God because God's already put the answer in there for us before we ever come to the problem. Verse 22. Just as the gazelle and deer are eaten, you may eat them. The unclean and the clean alike may eat them. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood. The blood is the life. You may not eat the life with the meat. You shall not eat it. You pour it out in the earth like water. You shall not eat it. That it may go well with you and your children when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. When we worship, it's not a ceremony. It's an act of obedience and sacrifice to the Lord. Worship, biblically, is an act of sacrifice and offering to the Lord. Singing songs is a small part of that worship. We sacrifice our dignity when we have bad voices, and we sing to the Lord because we're going to give that up. We don't care about our dignity. We want to just lift the name of Jesus because the Bible says lift the name of Jesus. And we do it in song. But it's a very small part of what's being defined here as when we find the place where the Lord's going to give us rest, that we do these things. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is the blood. So we just see this kind of pattern happening. Uh, We get to some verses here in verse 26. Moses kind of repeated himself a little bit. And we're talking about authentic worship, not faking this stuff. Make it real. Uh, Do it in your, your privacy of your own home. Do it when you don't. Verse 26, it says, Only the holy things which you have and your vowed offerings you shall take and go to the place where the Lord chooses. Again, the point here isn't the location. It's the obedience. Only the holy things which you have. When we come into the Lord's place, we come into the Lord's place with the holy things that we have. Uh, and you shall offer burnt offerings, verse 27, the meat and the blood on the altar of the Lord your God, and the blood of your sacrifice shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall eat the meat. It repeats what's already being said in the chapter so far, that this is the right way to do it. This is the acceptable way to do it. We bring what's holy into the church, into the presence of God. So when we go to that place that we call church, or the Jews go to the place that God will call the temple, they bring holy things to the place. They don't bring corruption to the place. This is why Jesus got mad and started throwing tables over in the courtyard. They're bringing corruption into the place where there should be no corruption. Everything belongs to God. Everything that we eat is is in the face of God. Uh, we bring holy things into that space. And it's a big deal. It's not a small thing. The hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, John 4:23). for the Father is seeking such worship. When we worship God, it's about Him and our hearts. It's not the place that's important. I'm but, but when we come to that place, we have to come to that place um, uh, with holiness. Sorry about that. Philippians, notice uh, there's going to be this uh, reference. Uh, I'll start it out that in verse 17, 3 17, it says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have for us so for a pattern. And then in Philippians 3, it kind of goes in and it mentions the reverse of these three things, right? And it talks about don't be stingy. And it says, uh, Don't uh, eat in such a way that's just good. And. Uh, we have this kind of just passage where we see this, this pattern in the New Testament too, that when we worship, we're supposed to worship in such a way that's holy. We don't bring nasty things to that worship. Got the phone muted. Okay. So this has a lot to do with verses 29 and 30, which I'm going to spend a little time on here. In verses 29 and 30, it says, When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you're not ensnared to follow them. After they're destroyed from before you, that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I'll do likewise. Okay, so this is kind of coming into verse 29. God is doing everything. We, the, in verse 28, it is in the sight of God, which is, we've seen that word a lot. In the Hebrew, it's penim. It means literally in the face of God, before his face. So when we do what's right and good, we have to think that we're doing it before God. So when we bring our own opinion into how to do that, we got to take heed. We got to watch out. So Moses gives the warning that there's a temptation here, or in verse 30, there's a snare here. And the snare doesn't exist for the ungodly. Moses is talking to an on-fire generation of Israelites, ready to go take the land. He's assuming that they follow the Lord, that they're obedient to the Lord, that they do what the Lord says, and then he gives this warning to those people, people that love God with all their heart, mind, and soul, there is a trap that the enemy is going to lay for you. And he gives this warning, and in verse 30 he says, take heed. And the heed that he's giving is how they engage with a world of of worship that they've already destroyed and gotten rid of. And the danger is that they bring it back. So they've thrown out all that garbage that was empty and didn't lead to life. But then the temptation is, well, let's bring it back. Because maybe there's a little life, and just if we put God there too, God will put more life into that thing. How great would that be? And this is one of those things people get really touchy about. But if the church is defined by we're going to get here, we're going to read the Word of God so that we can listen to it, obey it, and walk that way, even good, happy people are inspired to say, let's bring this into the church too, and let's bring that into the church. Let's do more of this, and let's do that because it's really appealing to people out in the world. And if it's super appealing to people in the world, then we want to do that too. So that's one of those kinds of things where we just kind of set this, uh, we set this up, and we. We look at it, and and it's based on this deception that if we redesign worship in the church, that we do something that God wants us to do based on our feelings. But in John 6, 44, it says, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Even Jesus says, Nobody comes to me unless the Father draws him. So if Jesus has abdicated his ability to plan and plot and design a better Bible study... How much more should we be wary of doing that, too? And it says, I will raise him up in the last day. Jesus is going to be there for those people when the Lord draws them in. But what are we drawing people into? And I think the church has a real struggle with this right now. Why do people come to church on a Sunday morning? Is it to hear good, thick, rich Bible study and teaching, so we can hear the Word of God? Or is it because of the worship service? Are we coming to church because we went to a, an awesome camp experience and now we, we want more of that camp experience when we come to church on Sunday? Or were we coming to church on Sunday because the camp experience made us aware that this is where we're going to hear the Word of God in depth? And that's really the difference. That's the line that has to get drawn. If the purpose of the activity is to draw people in because of the activity, we're, being, we're not taking heed to this. If the purpose of the activity is to give people a taste of the word of God that they're going to hear if they come to the real activity, that's a big deal. Because studying the word of God, praying together, eating together, rejoicing together, that's the heart of what we do. So there's churches, there's a church downtown that does the, the, the block party where they bring in secular bands and serve beer. And that's something the world worships. But they're not bringing people into studying the Word of God. They're, people are just getting drunk and enjoying themselves and going home. And we in the church can do that on a much smaller scale. Uh, and, and the temptation is always there because you think, wow, if there's joy in that, maybe we can use that somehow for the church. I think God tells us to do it the opposite way. Instead of being ensnared to follow them, after we've destroyed those things and and determined that they're not full and that where we get life is from the word of God, from prayer, from fellowship, from eating together, why would we bring back in things that don't really give real life? It's false worship. Why would we inquire to see how they serve their gods when we don't want to do likewise? So it's an ongoing and a persistent temptation. But here's the line. If the purpose of those activities is an outpouring of joy that we already have, or a new creation from the study of the word of God that's exciting so in the 60s when the Jesus people started getting saved one of the first things they started to do is they started writing new music but they didn't go and say how can we take what the world does and somehow bring life to that you know they they said let's start writing new songs because we got to praise the Lord and this is how to praise the Lord So they took tools and used them for the kingdom. But the whole point was to celebrate an existing joy in their heart that had been generated from prayer, the word of God, fellowship, eating together. And they were so joyful from those things. There's an outpouring of activity. It wasn't saying, how do we do things to draw people in when that's God's job? And there's a difference. And it's a subtle line that Moses is telling these on-fire believers, to draw that line and be careful of it and be wary of it. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's not a seeker-friendly church. By definition, denying myself as the first conditional act is not seeker-friendly. So we have a, a trend in our church right now to make churches as welcoming as possible. And the purpose of the church is not to be as welcoming as possible. The purpose of the church is to accurately teach the word of God so people can rebuild their relationship with God in a direct, personal, intimate relationship with God. And the first step in that, according to Jesus, is to deny yourself. Realize and come to the point that you are broken and then find your joy again. Take up your cross and follow me. Denying myself can happen without accepting Jesus. And that's just called depression right? And just being broken. So deny yourself, take up the cross of Christ, realize the sacrifice that Christ made for you, and then follow Christ. Find your joy again. Obey him in that sense. So in the New Testament, we get a clear path to follow Christ. And the Israelites had a clear path to follow. Go, (laughs) go west in across the Jordan and go there. So when somebody taught, when we talk about Bible study and we're talking about how much we get out of it, the peace we get, the joy we get, the community we get, that every week we get to eat together and praise together and fellowship together, that's natural evangelism. We share that with people. But we don't try to connect with what the, the empty things they're worshiping and say, oh, it's like this, or you can do this. And we don't have anything to sell because we're naturally joyful about it on our own. So we don't inquire for those things. God's a spirit, and that's and we worship Him. We worship in spirit and in truth. Even in, 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 when we look back at our lives and remember like what we were before, it, you know, from the podium there, there's a teaching like called a testimony, where we say I, w- I was this, but then God did these things. The point of a testimony is to celebrate what God's already done. It's not to celebrate what we did and how horrible we were. And I don't know if you've heard testimonies like this, but people try to celebrate all the horribleness before God started to move. And that's not the point of a testimony. The point of the testimony is to celebrate what God's actually done, how he got you out of those things. Even Paul the disciple didn't spend a lot of time talking about his past. He says, "...I count all things for loss for the excellence and the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things." I count them as rubbish. In, in, in the Greek that's actually kind of a slang term, uh, equivalent to our saying crap or even worse. But it's a slang term referring to feces that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness. Again, that same idea, not doing what's right in your own eyes. Everything Paul did prior to Christ was a waste of his time. And that's how as believers we talk to other people because we realize the change God's doing in our life, the joy God's putting in our world, and we don't try to imitate the world, we try to imitate God because that's where the life is. To all who are thirsty, I freely give from the waters of living life. That's the evangelistic message. I have this joy coming out of me that I got put back on on Sunday morning. I want you to come with me. There's an open door to people that want to come in and study the Word of God and pray and fellowship and eat. It's all right there. Church is sacred. And I think that's what Moses is saying in this chapter. Like, if you want to eat gazelle, go eat gazelle. Just don't call it church. Don't call it the worship of God. But when we're talking about the worship of God, we want to bring people in that can teach the Word of God so that we can follow Christ. And that's the heart of everything we do. It's not about the campfires. It's not about our trip to the Dells. It's not about the, you know, the kinds of food we eat. It's about the fact that we have a community of people that really want to study the Word together. How cool is that? And we just say, praise the Lord. And most of the Word's going to reject that. That's not an invitation they want. Or they want to come and puff themselves up and be the most important person in in a room full of humble people. And that generally doesn't go very well. If you try to puff yourself up in a room full of humble people, they just are like, okay, puff yourself up. It doesn't matter to us. We're not impressed. Um, And we mistake that relationship that we have as being unkind to people. And, And there's really a biblical kind of conversation to be had here. And I want to have this conversation after we talk tonight. I'm looking forward to that conversation. But being nice is not what we're called to do in the Bible. Being loving is what we're called to do. So I'll give you an example. You know, when you have that idea that church is a sacred place and this is our place that we've set aside and it's holy to us, we don't bend on that. So when people want to come in and tell us how to do our worship, when it's prescribed by God and we're doing it God's way, uh, we don't really have have a heart to listen to that. We're not really interested in their opinion about how we do things. Um, When people showed up, at Jesus's teachings, when he's teaching the word of God as himself, he didn't really need people to come in and try to slither around and try to corrupt people and, and and question how God was teaching the word. Matthew 12, 34, he says, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If I speak, I want to be speaking what Moses is trying to say through this chapter so that we can hear it and clearly understand that This place of worship that Moses is identifying as a sacred place. So we have to warm up to the idea that when God says you shall not, that that's not a bad thing. It's a really good thing to say that it's not my truth that matters, it's God's truth that matters. And we have an example like Paul that says, look, it's not my life that matters. It's what Jesus Christ has done through me in all humbleness of spirit, that when I obey Christ, that's where really cool things happen. And Jesus wasn't being nice. To, there's no way in which you can say Jesus is being nice to these people. He's not being nice. He's not even making an effort at being nice. But he is loving them. Because for the prideful and the arrogant, the most loving thing you can do is speak truth with grace into their life. Not a hateful argument. But just saying, you are evil. And what you're saying and what you're doing is wrong in the eyes of God. Not my opinion. The Bible says that's not okay. You shall not. And when God says you shall not, I'm just going to obey it. What God says, I'm going to just do it. Because then I'm an obedient, humble servant. I'm not an ignorant, naive person that hasn't read a book. I'm an intelligent, capable human with free will. And I choose to obey God over human beings. So when human beings say something's good and acceptable and I say God says it's not, I'm just going to stick with God because God's opinion is eternal. He controls my eternal destiny. And whatever those other people might want to do, I really don't care what they're going to do. And that's the most loving thing you can say to people. Is I... I, I, the door is always open. Anyone who wants to come shall get rivers of living water, according to Jesus. And then he turns around and he calls them a brood of vipers. John the Baptist calls them a brood of vipers too. They show up to get baptized and they're in the Baptist, John the Baptist line to get baptism. Imagine a church today doing this. And he looks at the line and he turns and he says, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And he's talking to prideful, arrogant Pharisees that think they know everything. And he's literally saying, get out of the baptism line. I don't want you here. (laughs) And what pastor today says that in a church where they look down, the, if they have a baptism and there's actually a line of people to get baptized, which is pretty rare in the church today. But let's say there is a line of people. What pastor would look at that line and say, you people, get out of the line. You don't get to be baptized. That's not nice. It's not Minnesota nice. That's for sure. But it's truthful that you can't be baptized when your heart is arrogant and hard towards God. And if you're not obeying God and what he says, God will turn on anybody, even the people he loves. I'm going to, don't take my word for it. Jesus turns to Peter and you know this passage, right? Matthew 16:23, And he says, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Did Peter love, did Jesus love Peter? And the answer is absolutely he adored Peter. He's, he handed Peter his church and said, feed my sheep. And the question he asked him is, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yeah, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Sacrificially give your life for other people because I'm asking you to do that, Peter. Obey me. If you love me, you obey me. All worship starts from obedience. And then ste- second step is barbecue. Eating Obedience, then barbecue. And then rejoicing. It, it goes in order. And just like this chapter says. But to argue that Jesus didn't love Peter is a big stretch. Therefore, we have to say that there are points in time where in order to love Peter, Jesus had to rebuke him and had to call Peter's words and actions what they were. They were evil. And when somebody says, Jesus, don't do what God's telling you, like don't follow the word of God, which is what Peter was saying to Jesus. You don't need to do this, Jesus. And Jesus said, just get behind me, Satan, because I've given my life to what God's called me to do. I obey First, if it's a lot of people love the, the the half verse, love thy neighbor, but they forget the the first half of the verse is love God. And if we don't love God, we don't have the capacity to love our neighbor. And if we do love God, even sometimes loving our neighbor means not being nice to them and endorsing a sinful lifestyle and a sinful set of choices that's leading them straight to hell. And we love them so much. That we decide to give them one opportunity to hear God's word one more time through our mouths. God says, You shall not do this. Therefore, don't keep telling us how to run our worship. Feelings are a real deceptive thing and they can be an entanglement because if we ask how other people worship in the world, like these verses say, and then we start to do likewise, we're compromising something there. And that's a problem in the church, it is throughout the Bible. So, out of curiosity, I just wanted to look up the word feelings because is there ever a point at which my feelings are something I should follow or be a good thing where I don't get counsel from other people in the faith or mature believers or I don't read the word of God or I don't pray to the Lord? I just go on my feelings. Is there ever a case for that? And the reality is the word feelings is only mentioned once in the entire Bible. And depending on your version, the version I got, New King James, only one reference to the word feelings (laughs) and I'll read it to you. It says, Proverbs 29:11. a fool vents all their feelings, but a wise man holds them back. The great struggle in our flesh is our feelings. And when we walk through life as a church, as a per- per- group of believers, and we try to never hurt people's feelings, we're also never speaking the truth of God into their life, especially if they're sinners. So on fire believers, because we're graceful and we're nice and we're peaceful and the doors open to everyone and all who are thirsty can come and drink, we often become compromising of that. And we start to allow things that the world says is okay into this sacred, holy space of sacrificial, obedient worship. That's a danger. And it's a danger to the whole church. And we're not supposed to add to what God prescribes or take away from it, which is how Moses concludes the chapter. Whatever I command you today, be careful. Guard it like a soldier to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. Worship is serious business. We give our offerings, not because we feel like it because we've been told to. We eat together, not because we feel like it, or even because it's safe, because somebody's cooking might not be safe. It might be very scary. But sometimes we just do it because we're told to. And we put on joy, not because we start happy, but because we choose happiness. And we choose to do what God's told us to do and, and worship and assemble with the other saints and believers to do it. There's no if we should do that, or if we feel like doing that. That's what fools do. We put that aside and we do it anyways because that's what God tells us to do, regardless of how the rest of the world thinks of it. We obey in those things. We reject the world because it's already been destroyed. It's already been proven to be empty. Ask anyone who follows after or worships the world if they have found what they're looking for. And at least Bono from U2 would say they still haven't found what they're looking for. No matter where they go, no matter where they go on the earth, there's nothing. So if that's already been proven false, why listen to it? Why take your time with it? In certain areas of life, we keep worship sacred. This has nothing to do with outreach, right? And when we leave the church and leave the place of worship, because when we do outreach, yeah, niceness becomes more relevant. Graceful talk becomes more relevant. Hearing stories becomes more relevant. But when we come together as a people of God in a place of worship, we should be of one mind about this. There are some things that are just sacred and we keep them that way. Last little piece on this, and I, I think we can get confused and in, in, in lost in the particulars on this. So one example is like different kinds of worship. So if somebody wants to paint a picture during a worship setting, or if someone wants to teach from behind a podium or not behind a podium, or if someone wants to use an electric guitar or a full choral orchestra a choral an ensemble with orchestra, what kinds of, and we get so lost in that part of worship That we forget the idea of what the heart of worship is it's obedience to god it's obedience to god in all things not just in how we sing Uh, and and a church that wants to worship this way or that way may be different than what you personally feel like worship should be but they might also still be taking great heed to the things moses just warned about so if a church is taking heed and following what god's called them to do he can put new wine into new wineskins But they take heed because there's a line that doesn't get crossed, which is the truth of the word of God, the praying of the saints, eating together of the saints, and the worship of the saints. And those things don't get touched. So those things being sacred, there's all the incidentals around the edges that just don't matter that much to God. Because I do believe at the end of days, there will be people that went to serve God with their whole heart, mind, and soul that came from virtually every denomination out there. And there will be people that burn in hell from virtually every denomination out there that just couldn't get past themselves. And they couldn't humble themselves before the Lord God Almighty and what his word of God says in their lives. And they went through their entire life picking their own path, thinking they were right. And they're going to find out, they're going to say in that day, Lord, Lord, I move mountains in your names. And the Lord's going to say, I never knew you, man. I just We never hung out. I just wanted to spend time with you. I love you. And I just wanted you to hang out with other people that love me too. And you just missed that point. You got too worked up about church politics with people that just are missing the point of why we're there in the first place. So here's my prayer for our Bible study. I pray that we can disagree on the smaller points all over the place and have rich, robust, intellectual discussions even. Where we're like the Bereans, we seek stuff out. I pray that no one in this room takes my word for it, that you go home this week and you go to the word of God and you test everything I've said against the word of God, that I haven't added or taken away one word of it, verse 32, and that you seek it out for yourself and that all I'm doing when we teach the word is priming the pump so you can get rivers of living water in your individual lives. And in doing that, we become a community that's unstoppable because the power of God is flowing through us to everyone in our lives. That's my prayer. And that's what I hope for. It is not obedience or compliance to me. It's obedience and compliance to Jesus Christ. Because he's the living truth and he's the way and the truth in the life. And we should hear what he says and walk in that way. Just like Moses said in the last chapter. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and God, I just thank you for this time. I thank you that the word of God is alive and well. Uh, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And sometimes that sword cuts us and it hurts. Lord sometimes the Lord of God tells us things like that there are sacred spaces. Sometimes the Lord tells us things like you shall not. And Lord we just got to get comfortable with that idea that there are boundaries to the freedom you've given us. There are boundaries that we call sin that are outside of that. Lord I know that uh, in this chapter at least it's de- that sins defined by doing whatever is right in our own eyes. Lord help me to never go by what I feel is right in my own eyes but what I know is right, based because I've tested it. Lord, may I test all things against the word of God. And if I don't see it in the Bible, Lord, help me to have the humility to just back off and leave it alone. And Lord, help me never to put my will over other believers without testing it against the word of God. Help me to never speak into someone else's life unless I'm speaking your words and giving examples from your scriptures. And in that, Lord, I just pray you help me memorize the scriptures. Help me to bury them in my heart and that they're before my face. They're in my mind. They're they're there when I get up in the morning, when I go to bed, when I eat. All the stuff Moses talked about in the previous chapters. Lord, help me to just humble myself to you in your sight. Uh, And if I can do that, Lord, we can do all things. Uh, I'll serve you all the days of my life because I've already given you my life. I'll serve you in my finances, Lord. I pray that you just help me to not even have one ounce of ownership over that money and the resources we get as a family uh, and as a community, Lord, it's all your money. Help me to just give it to you in in my heart and in my mind and my soul, hand it over to you. Lord, when we feast and eat, let there be that, that to be done with generosity, Lord. We just share our food with each other and we do it in total joy. Help that to be a time of ministry, Lord, where we hear each other's needs. We know that walking in the door, not one person coming in the door is at the place of joy that they should be at when they leave. So help us to rejoy ourselves together, to find times to laugh and to breathe and to relax. And Lord, that we refresh and renew our spirits with rivers of living water when we just get our thirst quenched through that. So help us to eat together, both physically and spiritually. And Lord, help us to rejoice together. They just go hand in hand. So Lord, let that be our prayer. May you anoint us. May you go with each person uh, this week as they go through their week. May you bless them. May you keep them. May you help us to rejoy. And, And may we not add anything to it or take anything away. Lord, it's just that simple. It doesn't get any flashier, but it doesn't get any more beautiful either. So thank you for that, Lord God. We just praise you. and We lift you up in Jesus name. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.